Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. So, uh, I think you guys all know this. We're going to talk about peace in a minute. And, uh, and so, uh, I think you all know this is kind of a big week in the life of our church. How many of you know what's happening next weekend? Okay, let's try again, because I hope that's not true. <laughs> you do know that next week is the Legacy Project Commitment Sunday, February 26th. We've been announcing it for like, uh, I don't know, a few months. We've been having videos every week to tell you and remind you that, everybody still with me? Okay. So here's the deal. Um, odds are real good that within about six weeks, there'll be some bulldozers knocking down some space on our property, and we, we'll be launching into rebuilding this campus, which has needed to be done for a very long time. And next week is our chance to say, here's how I'm going to participate. This is what I can do. So I hope you are prayerfully. I gave you a magnet a couple weeks ago, you know, and I said, take this home, put it on your refrigerator, pray, 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 pray. What does God want us to do? Pray, 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 pray. If you haven't done that yet, this is a good week to start. Because next Sunday, at the conclusion of the service, we're going to pray together and we're going to collect those cards and together we're going to do something wonderful. I fully believe that we are going to do something that will change the history of this church, not just for the next 10 years, but for the next 50 years. Just like this room you're sitting in was changed because some folks had a Sunday like this a long time ago and they got together and raised the money and built this building that we have been in for all these years. And so, you know, it's just $4 million. I mean, some of us know when you live in a house, every once in a while you got to do stuff to it to keep it going. This place we're sitting in is looking at about, oh, I don't know, 50 years of deferred maintenance. <laughs> so we're going to pay attention to it. I've said over and over, this, this campus, these buildings... Uh, they may not be, you know, super functional, but they are well-loved and they are well-used. And, uh, and we have squeezed just about every ounce of life. And I'll be very honest with you, when the bulldozers pull up and some of these buildings come down, I will be so very happy. <laughs> I have been in them. I have been under them. I have repaired them. They need to go. They need to go. <laughs> When the termites quit holding hands, <laughs> the buildings will collapse. So will you be prayerful? Will you take it on and be prayerful this week and think about how? And I know, you know, it's hard. None of us have enough money. I get it. That's why it's called sacrifice. And it may be that you have to do something crazy like, you know what? <laughs> I'm going to give up these things and that money that I'm spending, I don't know, randomly, Starbucks, McDonald's, Jack in the Box. I'm just talking about myself now. <laughs> I may have to shift. I may have to change some things in order to make available resources to be a part of the legacy that we are leaving for future generations in this place. So they're not encumbered with either buildings that don't function, and this is really important, our debt. We want to pay for this in five years. 
five years. So prayerfully think about that. While you're thinking about that, I'd like for you in your brain to make a quick list of the things you worry about most. I don't mean what you, you know, sort of formally say, I think these are the things I should be worried about and these are the things I think I shouldn't be worried about, but what are you actually worried about? Because in my journey, I find that I'm often worrying about things that I don't really think I ought to be worrying about that the amount of worry in my brain and anxiety in my being is disproportionate to what I'm thinking about. Does that happen to anyone else? And so I just kind of quickly this morning want to ask you, make a quick list. Just if you stopped and you said, what am I thinking about? When I'm, when I'm worried, when I feel that sort of thing going on inside of me, what's going on inside of me? What is it that occupies my brain power, that occupies my emotions? And it seems to me that if we're going to do some work in there, in that inner place, that, that we probably need to do some demolition. There's probably some things in the way that I think and the way you think that need to be torn down. Like, we just can't work with them anymore. Like, they don't belong there. They're not correctly put together. The best thing is to just get rid of them. And then there's probably some things that need to be remodeled. There's probably some things that need to be rebuilt that need to be better. I don't know about you, but I'm kind of at that age now where I can look back and I can see some things that were better. You know, like in the olden days, certain things were better. Wow. So like, uh, for example, you know, uh, I, I like older cars. I'm a fan of that. Now I do have to say, those are projects. Those are hobbies. As far as getting in your car and turning it on and having it work, a new car is way better than an old car. Now, if you want something to do and you have a hobby, that's, you know. But I'm at that age where I could kind of go, yeah, I see things that I think are better, but actually when I start to talk about it, I'm like, well, you know, really, it's not that much better. In fact, in many ways, most things are better now than they were. And so sometimes I think we have to say, I'm going to tear down some old things and I'm going to rebuild them with some new things. What are the things, if you made a quick list, that worry you and cost you some energy? Because it turns out peace is a big deal. Peace is something we all seek and we all want. That's a topic that you wouldn't get any kind of push. If you go to any crowd, anywhere, anytime, and you say, let's talk about peace. I think we ought to have peace. If you ask Miss America, she's going to say, we ought to have world peace. What do you want? I want world peace. It'll just be right there because we need peace. We want peace. We want peaceful jobs. We want peaceful homes. We want peaceful relationships. We want peaceful families. We want a peaceful culture. I think the world has had enough war and violence that, that you could go anywhere in any culture and say, how do you feel about peace? And they would say, I'm for it. I'm very peace positive. <laughs> and we want peace in our inner world. We want peace right in here where we feel, where we think. And it turns out, however the other parts of peace work, if this is peaceful, then everything else can be managed. You know? And so that's a, it's a big deal. And we're into peace. We seek it. We, we drive to places that are peaceful. We fly to places that are peaceful. I hear this all the time, you know. Hey, I got a, a new doctor. And, uh, and how did you pick this doctor? At their office is peaceful. It feels peace. I feel peaceful. When I go in, hmm, interesting. So it might be a quack, but you feel good. Okay. But you'll hear that. 
I got a new therapist. How did you pick them? It was peaceful. Got a new dentist. Got a new this, got a new that. How would you pick? It was peaceful. I felt peaceful. The room was peaceful, so I stayed. Because we're drawn to peaceful places. If it's peaceful, we feel like it's good. It's got to be good. We long for this issue of peace. And it turns out, biblically, it's a big deal. There's a lot of energy given to this issue of peace. John 16, 33, I've told you these things so that in me you might have peace. In this world you'll have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Which is kind of an oxymoron of a verse. I've told you these things so you've got a peace, you're going to have trouble. So clearly what Jesus is speaking of is a kind of peace that is bigger than the troubles that we face. Are we familiar with this kind of peace? A peace that is peaceful even in the midst of trouble. Matthew 5, 9. Jesus is such a believer in this peace thing that he commissions us to go make some peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. I always think, isn't the Bible interesting? Because we could stop now and have a whole sermon just about this. We could stop right now and go, you know what? Blessed are the peacemakers. Are we making peace? Are we contributing to the peace of the world? Are we contributing to the peace of relationships? Are we contributing to the peace of the culture? Uh, are we? Or we think, well, I don't know who those peacemakers are, but I hope they'll get on it because it's not working out that well right now. Some of Jesus' final thoughts and words to the disciples are centered around peace. John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Clearly, it's not a naive, Pollyanna kind of peace that he's talking about. He's, he's saying, there's a lot of bad stuff happening. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives. I'm giving you something different than that, deeper than that, stronger than that. Isaiah 26, 3, you will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Another translation says, they'll keep in perfect peace those whose minds are fixed on you. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And then finally, in 2 Thessalonians, Paul's speaking of benediction. So, so whenever we hear a benediction, and we know that a benediction is being spoken, then the custom would be that we quiet ourselves and we receive the blessing of the benediction. So you can do that for a minute. You can just take a deep breath. You know, this is, this is Paul praying a benediction prayer. Maybe you want to open your hands. You want to just receive this. Now, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. It turns out peace is a big deal. It's talked about over and over and over and over. A few weeks ago, I, I, I shared with you a story. I don't know, it's been a few months ago now. So sometimes I hesitate to tell you that I told you this a few weeks ago because most of you won't remember what I preached last Sunday, much less what I remembered several months ago. So this will all be new to you. If it's new to you, great. If you're a person that happened to write a note and now you're going, I think he's repeating himself. I do know I haven't gone that far down yet. But the truth is, this little scenario has stuck with me, and I, it, it's an image that I can't get away from. I was with me a long time before I shared it a few months ago, and it has stuck with me and lingered. And it takes place 
on the Mount of Olives as Jesus is entering. And it's the story as told by Luke in chapter 19. So Jesus is descending the hillside and he is receiving the messianic proclamations from the people. This is his coronation. If you, if you follow the biblical trajectory, there, there is an Old Testament story of the coronation of a king. And this is so, so much connected. The words, the, 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 the shedding of the uh, palms, the coats on. It's, it's reminiscent of the coronation of a king. And what we get in this parallel telling of the stories is that this is Jesus' coronation as king. That's what, that's what we're supposed to get. This is the formal coronation of Jesus as the Christ, the King that is coming. And so the people are shouting it. The words and phrases they're using are reminiscent from that Old Testament story. They are the proclamation of the Messiahship of Jesus. And it is as if the people are saying, you're him, you're it. You are the long-awaited answer to the problems. You are the long-awaited answer to the issues. You are the long-awaited solution that we have been longing for and praying for and seeking. And they're speaking it out loud. You're him, you're him, you're him, you're him. So powerful is the proclamation that the Pharisees say, you need to make those disciples be quiet. They need to stop that. You are not entitled to receive that sort of blessing. And Jesus says, well, I'll tell you this, if they get quiet... The rocks will cry out. Because this knowledge that the Messiah is the answer to the problems is woven into the fabric of creation. He's not talking about some weird supernatural, the rocks are going to scream. He's talking about this. That the very fabric of creation understands the legitimacy and the power of this Messiah. And if the people don't speak it, then the rocks will speak it because it's woven into the fabric of creation. Now we know that that fickle crowd is going to change. And within a few days, they're going to cry for his crucifixion. I'm so glad we've gotten over that weird thing where we know he's the answer. But somehow we try so many other things. And we are so easily swayed by the crowd, by the mood, by the culture, back and forth. If you were to go to Israel today and you were to stand on the Mount of Olives, there's an observation point there. Every single person who ever goes to Israel stands on that observation point on the Mount of Olives and has a picture taken with the old city in the background. Everybody's seen that image? Google it this afternoon. Mount of Olives, Israel, you'll see people standing. Old city in the background. There's a camel there. Always a camel there. If you walk out, you turn left. You go down the sidewalk, you'll find some stairs. Those stairs will lead you to the path of the triumphant entry. And you can walk down the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane, to the Church of All Nations, where the Rock of Agony is. You can walk down that path and look down across the Kidron Valley into the Old City. If you're paying attention as you walk down that path, you'll, it's a walled walkway. And the wall's on both sides, cemetery on one side, but on the other side, you'll notice about halfway down, there's a break in that wall, there's actually a gate. If you go through that gate, you'll find another church. It doesn't get nearly as much traffic as the Church of All Nations. It's the church called the Dominus Flavit. It means the Lord wept. And it is the place, if you turn out and go, it is the place that commemorates that space where Jesus stops in the middle of this scene. Right after speaking to the Pharisees about the rocks crying out, 
he stops and he looks over the old city and he weeps and he says, if only you had known what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. It is such a powerful moment to me. I, I, I just think about it so often because I, I think that in the midst of me kind of saying, you're him, you're it, you're the answer, you're the solution, yada, yada, yes, I do believe, I have faith, blah, 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 and the anxiety and the thoughts swirl around in my head, I think he must look at me at times and go, Dave, if only you had known what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. And it's hidden from your eyes because you're thinking about other stuff. Because you got distracted, because you focused somewhere else, because you couldn't leave your faith and trust in this one thing. You, you, you had it there. You said it out loud. You spoke it. You told other people about it. But in your heart of hearts, you didn't hold it. You didn't commit to it. You didn't stay with it. You let other things distract you, and it cost you peace. If only you had known what would truly bring you Peace. I think that part of the issue of peace is knowing what is mine to do and knowing what is not mine to do. Like I could be peaceful if I just knew that it wasn't my responsibility. You know, I had a prayer time this morning and in the prayer time we were talking about this thing and somebody said, remember when you were a little kid and you just, you just, you just trusted. You just didn't worry about stuff. It's like, yeah, because nothing was yours to do. I mean, think about it. You didn't even have to get to the bathroom. You'd just be like, <laughs> I got zero responsibility. But then you get older, and this dilemma begins. What's mine to do? What's not mine to do? Should I? Should I not? Is this mine? Should I let it go? Do I trust God? Do I fix it? Do I jump in? Do I jump out? I don't know. <laughs> When we think about the serenity prayer, Reinhold Niebuhr is supposedly composed the prayer, give me the courage to change the things I can, the serenity to accept the things I cannot, and the wisdom to know the difference. That the heart of that prayer is this thing about, I could have peace if I could discern this, if I could know what is mine to do and have the courage to confront it and know what is not mine to do and know when to let go. And I would guess in your short list of things that you made in your brain, there are probably things in there that you go, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. That's why they're in there. <laughs> I don't know if I should do this or not do this. I don't know if I should say this or not say this. I don't know if I should confront this or let it go. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. That's why I have anxiety. <laughs> or is that just me? And so that idea of the line that gets drawn somewhere inside of us is not a new idea. All the way back into ancient Greek, Epirikos gives us this little piece of wisdom. Make the best use of what is in your power and take the rest as it happens. Some things are up to us and some things are not up to us. Our opinions are up to us. Our impulses, our desires, our aversions, in short, whatever is our own doing. Our bodies are not up to us, nor are our possessions, our reputations, or our public offices, or that is, whatever is not our own doing. It's not a new idea. We've been trying to figure out where to draw this line for a long, long time. The 11th century Jewish philosopher Solomon ben Gabriel writes these words, and they said, 
at the head of all understanding is distinguishing between what is and what cannot be and the consoling of what is not in our power to change. That's the beginning of wisdom, knowing what's mine to do and what is not. The philosopher W.W. Bartley writes these words, For every ailment under the sun there's a remedy or there is none. If there be one, try to find it. If there be none, never mind it. I don't know. And Frederick Schiller wrote in 1801, about a century before the serenity prayer was written, Blessed is he who has learned to bear what he cannot change and to give up with dignity what he cannot save. So into this conversation now Peter raises his voice. And something happens at the close of this letter that is incredibly important. So let me remind you, we are studying together over these seven weeks this letter of 1 Peter. It's just five chapters long. Peter is writing it from Rome in 62 A.D. Uh, he is martyred in 64 A.D. So we know that the clouds of this persecution is growing. He's beginning to sense it. He's writing this letter to a group of believers in Asia Minor. And he's saying to them, be encouraged. Here are the things that you must prioritize as you prepare yourselves to weather the difficult times that are coming. That is the gist and the hope of the letter. And so we've made this journey about these things, the first things first, as he has listed and talked to them. And now he is coming to the conclusion of that letter. We, we talked for two weeks now in the conclusion. He had an introduction to his conclusion. We've settled into it, and now we're coming to the very close of the letter. And Peter does an interesting thing in the writing. At the close of this letter, he now changes voices. He is writing now in the imperative voice. And that indicates to us, these are things you must do. If you want to have peace, here are things that must be paid attention to you. This is where our brains engage. And so he's speaking to us. It's beautifully written. It's powerful prose that sounds almost poetic, but in it there are powerful, in fact, five distinct imperatives that he invites us to. Listen to how it is written, 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. Because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen imperatives of peace. The first one is this, humility. Humble yourself under God's mighty hand. I do not believe this, but I think this. Everybody with me? God is so lucky to have my help in running the world. Anybody else not believe that but think it? I mean, I find myself in my conversation with God saying, well, you know God, Here's what you ought to do. Just that very phrase is kind of interesting, isn't it? You know, God, I've got some ideas, and I think, I know you've been busy. 
I'm not saying I'm smarter. I'm just saying I know you've been busy and maybe you haven't noticed. Here's a list of things that I think you should do in regard to me and my life and my story and what's going on. Okay, just me. I'm the only one that does that. <laughs> this imperative to humble ourselves. And by the way, um, I don't know if you've noticed this, but how many sermons in the last year have had humility as one of its points? Anybody notice a lot? Good. It's always refreshing because I ask earlier and people are like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's not like we're listening while you talk. That's not what's going on. <laughs> what would it be like for me to really embrace this, that I humble myself under God's mighty hand? You're God and I'm not. How much of my energy and lack of peace is because I'm constantly bargaining constantly helping God see what he can't see and, and inviting him to do what I think he ought to do instead of simply letting it go to him. Humble yourself under God's mighty hands. How many things on my list could I simply say, in order to have peace, there are things that I must let go. I must I will not have peace if I continue to hang on to them. It's not that I have to stop caring about them. This is only the first of the imperatives. But I need to humble myself. I, I need to somehow understand that God understands. That God has an idea what's going on. That, that if I thought it, and I know it, and I could see how it would be better, that God's probably on it. In fact, by definition... I cannot have a better idea than God. Do, do we need to dig into that? God is the summum bonum. He's the highest good. He's the one of whom you can think nothing higher. Well, if God said, then he should be more... Mer if you thought about a more merciful God, guess what? That's God. If you thought about a better deal, guess what? That's God. God is the one of whom you can think nothing higher what kind of crazy thing goes on in our brain where we go, I got an idea about God. And he should get on it if he wants to be God because he could get fired from being God. And he has been in this culture. He's been fired because we thought we knew better. We thought we had more justice. We thought we had more mercy. We thought we had more understanding. We thought we knew better. So we fired him as a culture. Oh, heaven forbid that we would be in that space. Humble yourself under God's mighty hand. I can only see what I can see. Second imperative, trust. Trust. It's not just about humbling ourselves. It's about trust. Cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Paul, Peter says, listen, humble yourself under God's mighty hand because, by the way, God sees you, He knows you, and what He has in mind for you is what is absolutely best for you. Well, but God wants me to behave myself. Yes, He does. <laughs> because God is busy putting obstacle courses in front of human beings to see how well they run the race. And the ones who run better than others get better rewards than others. That is bad theology, folks. God says... Don't do this because it'll hurt you. Don't go over there because it will wound you. I am your loving heavenly father. Every piece of morality is a guardrail to keep you safe. 
and to see you fulfilled and to see you blessed and happy. I'm not limiting your joy. I'm channeling it into an eternal, never-ending, never-exhausting kind of joy because when you jump into the joys of this life, you're going to find they fade very quickly. And they also have sharp spikes that hurt. (laughs) And so he cares for you. Humble yourself under God's mighty hand. Cast all your anxieties because he cares for you. When's the last time you demoed some stuff in your brain? When's the last time you demoed some stuff and you built something like trust? I believe God cares for me. I believe he loves me. I believe he sees me. He sees intimately the struggle. He knows me. Before a word is on my lips, he knows it fully. He intercedes to the Father with groans that cannot be uttered. That's how he loves me. That's how he knows me. I trust him. I trust him. I trust him. Number three, not only are we to humble ourselves and to be trusting, but we're to be vigilant. Be self-controlled and alert or be alert and of sober mind, depending on how you want to arrange the Greek. We're supposed to be vigilant. I I don't know about you, but I find strange characters in my brain, uninvited and unattended. Anyone else? They're just in there. (laughs) How'd you get in there? It's my brain. This is a closed system. We're to be vigilant. We're to be vigilant. Which means we, we get a hold of some things. C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters has the senior demon Screwtape say these words to his protege, Wormwood. It's funny how mortals always picture us as putting things in their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. There's a lot of wisdom there, isn't there? How often do we sit in space... And we just simply say, in all things, God's working for my good. I'm going to be vigilant around this. I'm going to be vigilant. Because it will get pushed out of my brain. And I'll think about a lot of other things. There are things that I believe, in all things, God is working for my good. If God is for us, who could be against it? He who did not spare his own son, how will he not also graciously give us all things? things. You got to be vigilant. My brain is my space in which I am invited to speak words and to channel my thoughts. We're to be vigilant. Finally, number four, we're to be resistant. Your enemy, the devil, roams around like a roaring lion seeking you may devour. Resist him. Standing firm in the faith. We're to be resistant. It is an imperative. If we're going to have feast, we stand up against some things that are not okay. That are not okay in our brain. They're not okay in our life. They're not okay in our journey. We stand against them. In Ephesians, Paul is writing and he says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of the dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Have you ever had this experience? You're going through something, but your emotional response to it is disproportionate to what you're going through? And you tell yourself things like this, this is crazy. This is crazy. I don't know why. Like something happens and it's a seven, but in your brain it's a 20. <laughs> and in your relationships and the, and the amount of oppression that you feel from it and the mo- amount of being overwhelmed you feel from it, you're like, listen, 
I think those are great times that in our resistance we say, this is not about flesh and blood. This is not about what somebody said or did. My response to this is disproportionate to what just happened. Now, my brain has taken it seven declensions forward and upward. But I'm going to stop right here, and I'm going to resist. I'm going to resist because this is where Satan does his best work. In this open space between what really happened and how I feel about what happened. And what I have allowed in vigilance to be there. Some things that i got to get demoed out. Number one, i got to humble myself. Number two, I've got to trust in him. Number three, there is a vigilance that I say, no, I I know that I know that I know that I know that he cares for me. And I know that in all things he's working for my good. And I know that he is for me and not against me. So, Satan, no. No. Not going to do that. Not going to go there. Not going to have those thoughts. In fact, I'm going to bow my head right now. I'm going to say, God, in your name and by the power of your blood... Would you push out every thought that is not in keeping with Christ? This is not a playground. Amen? Peter says, if you want peace, there's going to be some toughness. There's going to be some resilience. There's going to be a moment when we stand up and go, no! No. I'm not going to think that. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to act like that. I'm not going to act out like that. I'm not going to act up like that. Because I know, I know that God loves me and is in the middle of this with me. Even though I feel alone. Even though I feel abandoned. Even though I feel hopeless. Even though I can't make it all work. I'm going to be resistant. And I'm going to push back. Finally, number five, hope. Hope. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you suffered a little, a little while will make you strong and firm and steadfast. That the trajectory of my story is a trajectory of redemption and restoration and hope. That's what's happening in my story and in my life. Hope. If you've been around a while, you know that this is my life verse, these passages. And the story of that, you know, I, in, I almost 30 years ago now, this passage got in my brain. And I was teaching Bible studies on it, I was preaching on it, and I didn't really understand why, but I couldn't get away from it. Like people were at the point of going, well, just read 1 Peter 5, 6 through 10, and you'll have the sermon this weekend, don't worry about it. And then I was diagnosed with cancer. And it made perfect sense. And it became the verse that held me. It became incredibly personal. Humble yourself under God's mighty hand that in due time he may lift you up. Cast all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. For Satan roams around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him. Standing firm in the faith. Knowing that your brothers and sisters throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself make you strong and firm and steadfast.
This is what I believe. For some of us, that whole cycle happens inside of life. And for some of us, it happens in deep time. But God constantly keeps his promise. He constantly restores. He constantly reestablishes us and makes us strong and firm and steadfast. Now, in eternity, you and I live in this vigilance. We live in humility, we live in trust, we live in vigilance, we live in resistance, we live in this hope. Are you? Is that true of you? I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. If you want to put out your hands, I want to slowly speak this benediction over you, and then we're going to respond. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way the Lord be with you all God I pray your peace and grace over this congregation those who are joining online those who will watch in the course of this week I pray genuine peace a peace that passes our understanding that gets around and beside our own fears and worries and situations and circumstances I pray peace a peace that follows the humility and the trust and the vigilance and the resistance and the hope. May it inhabit us. May it be the first thing that we establish in our lives and homes and families and in our inner world. Would you hear our response? We pray in Jesus' name. And Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.